Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podside, everyone. This is, of course, Carlo. Today, uh, we are we, we have uh, you know a, a host from the past, from old Earth, if you will, right? Pete, how you doing, Pete? I, I'm okay. I mean, I'm I'm like a bad penny, man. I keep turning up. <laughs> well, you know, maybe maybe you're buried buried underground uh, ages and ages ago, Pete. Fair enough. Uh, and, and and this is all uh, like I'm not just ra- I'm just not just roasting you, Pete, because our, our guest today is none other than Matt Hughes, uh, you know, multiple uh, award nominated uh, author Matt Hughes, who is, um, as I understand it, Matt, you uh, you more or less love to write within uh, sort of like a Vancean framework. Is that correct? Yes, I. I don't imitate Vance. I I revere him, of course, and I found that his settings are perfect for the kind of thing that I want to write. So I don't write pastiche, but I do play in his sandbox. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you I, I do find it, um, in general, uh, a lot of the stuff that I have read of yours happens in the the era right before the dying earth, which I, I always found to be a, a clever conceit because then it, it allows you to sort of gesture advances dying earth stuff, but also do it in your own way. Well, sort of the earth waiting for test results. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's because the first one that I wrote and I'm going now back to 1987 a book called Fool's Errant, in which the uh, there's a certain amount of magic involved, and it's very, very late in the space opera uh, milieu. Mm-hmm. And I, at the time, I was reading about uh, Sir Isaac Newton and his strange career, in that when he started out, he was a very dedicated alchemist. And somewhere along the line he switched and became a scientist. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of wondered, could it be that the rules of the universe changed and he just adapted to the change? Suddenly Mm -hmm. alchemy didn't work anymore, so he started doing proper experiments and cause and effect. And I threw that into the the mouth of my main character. And then the idea kind of grew from there that uh, this is how uh, we get from the Vance of the Gay and Reach, which is pure space opera, to the Dying Earth, which is magic. Right, yeah. right. Well, and, and and like remnants of that uh, scientific past, but it's generally sort of like fallen into decay or it, it, it sporadically works. Well, in the, the books from right before, Fool's Errant and, and the, the Love Embry books and, and 
Guff Bandar and so on. Um, it's just a very, very tired old civilization. Everything could possibly be done, has been done, been forgotten, been reinvented, done again, and then forgotten again. I mean, we're talking a very, very long time. Uh, yes. In the future. Well, uh, you know, it, I, I was reading um, that one of your, uh, not one, I would say that you're, uh, you, you, you haven't been shy about your primary influence and uh, who you are sort of writing in his sandbox, as you just said, is Vance, but also you mentioned Gene Wolfe, which also, you know, we, we did a whole like year of going through the book of the new sun and it's sort of fascinating, you know, exactly what you're saying, like this layer upon layer of just like time, just weighing on the world. And everybody is world weary and at least somewhat decadent. And there isn't much point in doing anything because it's all been done. Well, isn't isn't that a, a great metaphor for <laughs> for for being a writer? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But then you see, it all comes down to the execution. We're all doing yep. the same stuff over and over again, but we do it in our own different ways. Yeah. And let me say this: um, not everybody gets this because. Not everybody reads P.G. Woodhouse anymore, mm -hmm. but Vance referred to Woodhouse as a god, and I am strongly influenced by Woodhouse. Anybody who reads those first two books, Fool's Errand and Fool Me Twice, can say, oh, it's Jeeves and Bertie in the dying earth. It's yes. very playful, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I feel I feel like you um, like like we had uh, we had covered uh, the the helper and his hero uh, mm -hmm. recently, uh, and, which led us to to basically you know invite you on because yeah. you know, I, yeah. I I I had wondered where you had uh, sort of gone to because I I didn't see you that often anymore in in fantasy and science fiction, uh, uh, although that. Although I think I, I, when I went back, uh, there's obviously it's gaps in my own reading, <laughs> nothing yeah. to do with you. <laughs> well, I think, too, uh, and I'm not being critical here, but uh, I started selling to Gordon Van Gelder, and he mm -hmm. liked very much what I did uh, because it, it was different because it was so old fashioned. Nobody mm -hmm. is doing that sort of stuff anymore, but I was doing it pretty well and he liked it. And then Charlie Findlay took over, and he liked it as well. So I was mm -hmm. selling to him. I think the, the current editor, Sherry Renee. Uh, Thomas, may, yeah. Thomas, yeah. Maybe not so much, mm -hmm. um, because she has bounced a couple of mine, which she's perfectly entitled to do. Uh, and they get spread so that there's like now maybe one every nine months or a year, whereas I used to be in there. <laughs> For a while, I was in there every other edition. Yeah, you know? yeah, I, I definitely remember that because there there were several of the uh, Guth Bandar stories that I, I was following. This is back in I guess two thousand seven, two thousand eight, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and I remember because I was like, those were the first stirrings I had of like, oh, you know, you you could you could send your stories to this place if I could ever figure out what I wanted to write, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, 
But go ahead, Pete. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. I, I Honestly, my question is silly, and it may end up having us hit a wall here, but uh, – when 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 uh, uh, when Carlo first introduced me to the Guth Bandar series, uh, and you know I, we joyfully began uh, digging through all of those wonderful novellas and short stories. Um, one thing was bugging me is that every time I saw your name, I my brain went, "There's a link here between George R. R. Martin," and I I couldn't figure it out, and I couldn't figure it out, and I think it just hit me. Did you write? Uh, like a short story called something like the destined sword that was in that sword collection that came out towards the end of the last decade. Okay. Um, go back before that. Uh, George there, there was... and, and Gardner Dozoir did a tribute anthology to Jack Vance called songs of the dying earth. Mm-hmm. And they okay. invited me to be in that. And I had a, a story in that, which was really Kugel the clever uh, masquerading <laughs> under the name Grolian of Almery. Um, and that led to uh, my being asked by them and also Gardner separately uh, to send them stories of a Vancean vein. And in fact, I'm, I'm going to brag here. I, the one thing I'm particularly proud of is that when Gardner did one of his invitation-only uh, anthologies, and somebody failed to deliver, then he would send me an email and said, can you do me 10,000 words real quick? And I, I did that for him twice, which, and he, he bought both of them. So Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, I was in the, the Book of Swords, also the Book of Magic uh, and Rogues, which was the big bestseller, mm-hmm. also in Old Mars and Old Venus. I saw, yeah, I saw the old Mars. I, I didn't, I didn't uh, make the connection with old Venus though. Old Mars was the one was one of the ones where Gardner said, you know, can you do me ten thousand words in two weeks? And I did a, a Bradbury pastiche. Hmm. So, uh, and and if I remember correctly, what was it? The I I'm trying to remember now. Was it in? Was it in the Songs of Old Earth that you had? Was it Raphalon? Uh, no, that was in Rogues. Rogues. Okay, that's yeah. the one. Okay. And it, is, again, that was a, you know, I came up with this character for what they asked me to do for, you know, a roguish story. And then I thought, he's too good a character to waste. So I wrote all the stories that led up to that point, And I sold them to fantasy and science fiction. Can I ask you, I mean, I don't know if this is giving anything away, but is Raffalon like a a, a nod to, uh, was it A.J. Raffles? Probably unconsciously. Huh. I know about Raffles. He was a big uh, thief in Singapore in the Victorian period and so on. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's what, what made me think about it immediately because I was like, wait, Raffalon, Raffles? Yeah, they're sort of roguish characters. It's, yeah. I think probably I was influenced without knowing I was influenced. Well, I mean, that's, I, I, you know, I would beg to, or not beg, but I would say that, uh, that that's actually a great thing (laughs) in part, because I think that um, once you have fully digested as a writer, digested your influences, you can sort of like uh, take, you know, I I hate to use this word, but extrude them whenever you need them right into onto the page. 
don't go too far. I've never actually read any of the raffle stories. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. A, we have a very distant relationship. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Honestly, that's great. I, I can tell you something else. When I came up with Hengus Hapthorne, who is my Sherlock Holmes of the future, I'd also never read a Sherlock Holmes story. And eventually, I thought I really should. And I said to myself, find what is the first one uh, he did. Uh, not the first that he wrote, but the sort of origin story of the character. Mm. And I found that uh, it was old. Oh, the mystery of the Mary something that was a ship. And uh, I adapted that and, and made a story out of it for Angus. Huh. Did, did you, um, l let me ask you this, when you were um, sort of visiting or, or, you know, visiting for the first time, like the, the, the home stories, did you have like, uh, did you feel like it, um, that he he was he was doing things wrong as a, as uh, as based on your Hengus Hapthorn character. No, no, not mm -hmm. at all. Um, he is similar, I guess, in that he is profoundly uh, self confident mm. of his own intelligence. But I did something that uh, Conan Doyle never did. I, I started out with him at the peak of his career. You know, he's the foremost freelance discriminator of old earth. Uh, just at the time when the universe that he is best suited to, the universe of rational cause and effect, is about to collapse and be supplanted by a universe that works on magic, at which he is hopeless. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, you also do that with, uh, is it Caslow? Uh, except yeah. that, uh, as I understand it, Caslow is not quite—he's—he's he's not quite the luminary uh, uh, that that Hengus Hapthorne would be, right? No. Caslow is a Sam Spade uh, of the Space Age. Ah, uh, he is a discriminator. He's not on Earth. He's on one of the great uh, worlds long settled by humanity, um, and he falls into magic. Because he lives through the uh, the great change. Mm -hmm. It was the first time I'd actually done that. I was always either you know before it or after it, and with him I went through it. And the thing was, he turned out to have quite a talent. Uh, well, I mean, he's if he's a Sam Spade type of character, or a, a basically a, a noir character in sort of like this far future. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he's got he's got some sand to him, you know. Oh, yes. Yeah, he's tough and competent uh, and doesn't uh, – well, that's the funny thing. He doesn't suffer fools gladly, and his client who takes him on, who is planning to be a wizard after the change, of course, that makes him look like a complete fool <laughs> to, uh, to Caslow. But then they get involved, and strange things are happening, and then it actually comes – and now he really is working for a guy who is becoming a thaumaturge, a real powerful wizard. It's just there are other people who got the same idea, and there's only one space at the top, so to speak. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> those darn those darn MLMs in the far future. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one, one thing. thing 
Oh, let me, go ahead. Let me point out one other thing because this comes up with Caslow and uh, my, some of my other characters, Baldemar, the, uh, the wizard's henchman, and so on. Uh, somebody pointed this out to me, and I haven't really looked at it because I was just doing what comes out of my unconscious. But most of my characters are not heroic. Uh, they are more likely to be supporting characters in somebody else's story with a real hero. Like Guthbander, mm-hmm. or like right. Baldemar, or Caslow. They are, in fact, henchmen. Mm-hmm. They, they serve those more powerful than themselves. And it hadn't occurred to me, I, I kept doing that, but then when I thought about it, I said, of course, because that's what I did for most of my life. Uh, I was a speechwriter for rich and powerful people. Mm. I was a henchman. So <laughs> I know the field. <laughs> well, yeah. in, in some of your writing, well, certainly the, uh, the Guth Bandar ones, you spend a lot of time deconstructing a lot of um of mythic elements especially the whole idea of heroism and i it's hard for me to imagine that you you write a number of things along those lines and say okay well now we're just going to we're going to make a conan figure like it just doesn't feel right um no because i'm well i'm doing it from this perspective of a a hero's helper who is not like sancho panza volunteering for this work he's forced into it actually by the collective unconscious of which he is a, a student. Um, and the hero that he's attached to is absolutely horrifying. I don't know if that comes across as well as it should. No, uh, no he comes across as a, like, sociopath is the wrong word, but that's in the, that's in the ballpark. Well, to, to give away a, a crucial element of the story, you know, the human collective unconscious becomes aware that an alien collective unconscious, very powerful species of of, uh, telepaths is going to take it over. And so it constructs a hero to fight this, and then it enlists Bandar to be his his helper. So the hero that they construct is not really a full human being at all. He, He is more like an archetype. And he's constructed actually to be a sacrificial hero. He's supposed to die doing this. That's all he's for. And uh, they put him together that way. His psyche was edited and manipulated from infancy. The the ultimate Manchurian candidate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A tool to do a job. Well, so, and, and and I think that to your point, uh, the the tool only has sort of like one edge to it, right? And so the oh, yeah. the hero archetype is essentially, uh, I think, inhuman isn't exactly the correct word, but it's close, right? Because it it's not really doesn't have any human characteristics; it just has hero yeah, he, as he its has, main thing. He has archetypal characteristics. And that's all he's got. He's like, uh, what's his name from uh, the Big Bang Theory? Oh, uh, uh, you're talking about Sheldon? Yeah, without the charm. <laughs> oh, he's got. Oh, he's got charm. <laughs> compared to compared to uh, Barrow, yeah, he does. Fair enough. 
Pete, I think you had uh, you were going to ask something. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's the right time for it, but I mean that's the sort of thing I know. Like as your sidekick, I have a tendency to to go off on on random paths, Carlos. Sorry, <laughs> but well, that's, um, how you, that's how you do plots. <laughs> it, it, there you go. Well, yeah. one of the things I'm thinking about is like I'm living this conversation, but apparently, I, occasionally, I think, well, audience. Oh, yeah, there's an audience, and while we have browbeat them incessantly to uh, read the the Bandar short stories, I mean, it's it seems to make sense to get it from the horse's mouth. Like if if someone is new to your work, where would you advise they start? Like, what do you want to show off to them? Oh, okay. Well, there's two mainstreams. I won't. Well, it's three, but I won't talk about the crime fiction because a lot of that is very old now. Um, but you've got space opera, and you've got dying earth fantasy. If you want space opera, uh, the only time that I ever really consciously worked at doing advanced type story was a novel called Template, uh, which came out about 2008, uh, and I've it's been published twice by commercial publishers, and I self-published it after I got the rights back. And that is about a strange person, a man who is uh, a dualist and works in a kind of Las Vegas gaming house on a planet that is de totally devoted to that sort of thing. Uh, and then the only person he cares about in the world is murdered, leaves him a legacy, but it's a mystery, and he has to go out into the 10,000 worlds, you know, spaceships and so on, and find out first who's trying to kill him and then what he is, because increasingly it appears like the hero in Guth Bander. He's not really a fully-fledged human being. Gotcha. And that's, that's the one I would... If you want space opera, I would start with that. And if you wanted Dying Earth, I think uh, either the Raphalon stories, which is Nine Tales of Raphalon, or uh, Baldemar, which is mm. another group of stories that ran in uh, fantasy and science fiction. And Baldemar is a, uh, a wizard's henchman. He starts out as a street kid, works for a while as helping a collector for a moneylender, and then gets a job as a wizard's henchman. And then, well, strange things happen. <laughs> but those are two good places to start. Excellent. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Uh, also, uh, can, can we talk a little bit about your, uh, I forget, this is already out, right? The Barbarians from Beyond? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, at least two years, maybe three. Yeah, two years, I think. Yeah. So, so just to give uh, people listening who've never heard of this title before, uh, ah, okay. a, a little prelude or, or preface to, to get into it. Um, this is actually a continuation of Vance's uh, "The Demon Princes," right? Not a uh, continuation. Which is a no, not a continuation. Oh, my bad. It actually takes place during the time period of the first two books. Ah, and there we go. So it's it's a companion novel, a parallel. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So how, I mean, I'm going to guess that this was like uh, a, a huge uh, win in your, in your opinion, right? Uh, to be able to actually oh, yeah. write yeah, yeah, directly yeah. under Vance's. Uh, yes. Well, I, I'll tell you the background. Um, oh, what, 10 years or more, more ago, um, I said to myself, what was the first thing I read of Vance's? And it was the Dragon Masters, way back in like 1962, I think it was, mm -hmm. or three, in Galaxy Magazine, which my mm -hmm. eldest brother had a subscription to. And I was just bowled away by that and never forgot it. Read it later on again a couple of times as I grew up. And I thought, you know, okay, they, uh, they defeated the lizard men. And then they got on the spaceship and they went away. And where did they go? And I thought, you know, this would make a great sequel if we find out where those people went after. So I got in touch with, uh, with Vance, actually with John, his son, because we'd had contact. And I said, what would your dad think about me writing a sequel to the Dragon Masters? And he said, I'll ask him. And he got back to me and said he's amenable, which, you know, good use of the language. So <laughs> I started looking around and, and got in touch with Vance's agent because I didn't have an agent at the time. And started thinking about what I would write. And then Jack died. Just the hmm. day before my birthday in, in 2013. Oh, nice. And after that, John grieving for his father, didn't feel comfortable with doing anything like that. So we just put it aside. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'd asked a year before, something would have happened. But then, um, uh, about three, four years ago, whatever, uh, we'd still been in touch. And he got back and said that he was doing this thing where he would license people to write in Vance's space. Vance's universes, not Vance's main characters, although you might use the odd minor character, but basically his settings, the, you know, the Gay and Reach and, and Dying Earth and so on. Sure. And he remembered that I'd been interested in doing the Dragon Masters, and apparently they had somebody else who was going to do that, but he said, would you like to do something? And I said, yeah, I, I could do something to do with the Demon Princes. And he said, okay, go ahead. And so we did. And The Demon Prince's five books, all about uh, a guy called Kurth Gerson, who is hunting down the five master criminals who raided his home planet and hauled away the whole population of the town he came from, 5,000 people, into slavery. Uh, and then Gerson trained as a young man to be absolutely deadly, and then tracked each one of them down and dealt with them. Um, so the question that struck me once I began really thinking about it was what happened to those 5,000 people who were hauled away into slavery? And I came up with the daughter of one of them, which was a deliberate choice because Vance almost never had female protagonists mm -hmm. sure i wanted i wanted this to be in vance's sandbox but not 
trying to copy Vance. And I didn't write it in a Vancean style. I wrote it in a more uh, hard-boiled, noir kind of writing, which I really prefer to do. Uh, and I wrote this story about this young woman who comes back to the world where her parents were taken away from, looking for something that she thinks she can sell to buy them out of slavery. And then things don't quite work out the way she intended. Okay. And I called it Barbarians of the Beyond because early on, Vance had a, a book, and the title was Vandals of the Void. And I love that title. It's <laughs> so pulpish. Yeah. yeah, it's just pure pulp. And I thought Barbarians of the Beyond because uh, the world we're talking about where the raid was, <clears throat> that's in the part of space called the beyond, outside the Oikimene. Hmm. And the people of the Oikimene, the civilized part of space, think that the people of the beyond are hopeless barbarians. And that's why it's called that. I, I, I also just love the... Um, <coughs> it, it, it seems very reminiscent of, like, the old uh, planetary romance idea of, like, well, you know, you have essentially, like, uh, Visigoths, but they they have spaceships or, you know, something to that effect. It, it's just such a wonderfully pulpy idea. Well, it's more like pirates and drug cartels and that sort of thing. It, it's... It's a, a great number of the people in the story on both sides are criminals mm -hmm. because uh, the town that she came from or that her parents came from that was depopulated was standing there empty and a kind of mild-mannered cult from another world came and, and just took it over and settled it. And their whole cult was built around uh, consuming a kind of ganja-type plant. Uh, and then somebody who wanted to deal in that stuff came in and just took them over. Uh, and that's, it's called vertical, it's that's called vertical she, integration. Yeah, and that's what she stepped into with her agenda. I mean, that, that I, I do have to say that um, one of the, the things that uh, really pops for me is, in fact, these characters that are not uh, – like, like you mentioned earlier, like a lot of your characters are just not, uh, you know, pristine uh, heroes or anything of the sort. They, they may they they may be uh, adjacent to heroes at times, but not. Uh, they're not heroic. heroic. Yeah. Accidentally heroic. Yes. If, if, if absolutely required, a little heroism. Uh, well, I'm. A product uh, intellectually, I suppose, of the 1960s, when the anti-hero was very much uh, the thing, you know, Yosarian of Catch-22 and so on. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I like anti-heroes um, much more than I like heroes. And so I'm, I gravitate towards writing that kind of character. I certainly understand them more. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not terribly complex. Most of them, you know, like they want to steal something because they want it. <laughs> well, when they asked Creepy Carpus, why did you rob banks? He said, because that's where the money was. <laughs> I mean, how can you argue with such straightforwardness, really? Yeah. Well, I, I, my wife always says I shouldn't say this, but the truth is that I come from a family 
of the working poor, English style, um, mm -hmm. from Liverpool. And there's a strong streak of minor criminality that runs through my family. Um, and I, I sometimes say I'm the white sheep of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm also drawn towards crime writing. Uh, a lot of my science fiction and fantasy is actually crime stories uh, told in a science fiction or fantasy setting. Yeah, you you have mentioned that in a, in a few of the interviews I've seen, where you you, you essentially say that uh, you're you're a you're a mystery writer. Uh, yeah, sadly, uh, working no, uh, within this. <laughs> not not quite. Yeah, I, I'm a crime writer trapped in a science fiction author. There we go. Here is what I said. Yeah, and that's actually quite true. I started out seriously to write crime novels, and I sold one in Canada to Doubleday. And I won an award from the Crime Writers of Canada for the best story of the year. And I was charging away. You know, I had the backing of one of Canada's best mystery authors who introduced me to her editor, Doubleday. And then, through a fluke, uh, I sold my first that 1987 fantasy novel. I sold it to Warner Aspect, and they asked for a sequel, which... There were a couple of funny, ironic, satirical kind of books came out in 2001, just in time for the planes to hit the towers. And I mm. kind of put an end to funny fantasy and, and irony and so on for a while. So well, and, and a lot of... Uh, a, they didn't want a third one. Yeah. But, and, but David Hartwell, uh, whose name I bless, who was a big-time editor at Tor... He said, well, if you want to write one, I'll take one. So I wrote Black Brilliant, which is where Guth Bander came in. And yeah. next thing I know, the uh, I started writing stories in order to build my profile and was selling one after another to Gordon Van Gelder at Fantasy and Science Fiction, not nice. realizing that was actually difficult to do. But <laughs> he bought the first one. The first one I sent him, the first Tangus Hapthorne story, sent me a check within a week. So I said, oh, keep doing this. <clears throat> and that led to Nightshade Books asking me for three novels. And suddenly I was a fantasy and science fiction author. And so the crime stuff kind of got backpedaled. So, so much, much, much like your characters, you you are accidentally a science fiction writer. <laughs> I, was, I was accidentally a speech writer, which is <laughs> what I did with... I did that for 30 years. I had no what? idea that I could write speeches until uh, a guy I was working for, a member of parliament, said, I'm being, uh, I've been tasked to second the debate on the speech from the throne, which is like the opening of parliament, the very big deal. So write me a speech. And I, I wrote him a speech in one draft, and it was a big hit. Next thing I know, I was being headhunted by ministers' offices to come and join their staff and, and write speeches for ministers. And I ended up doing that until well into the 21st century. Wow. That pure is wild. Pure accident. I had no intention of ever being a speechwriter. But I found that I could uh, I, I could get $200 an hour doing it. And, I mean, that, was, and that was 20 <laughs> years ago, so you know, even more today. <laughs> exactly. I mean, a great work if you can if you can get it right. Uh, but well, yeah, it so, fed, so it fed my family for years and years. 
yeah. I mean, when you when you I, consider I, that you know, I, I'm a guy who grew up wearing clothes from rummage, rummage sales and having to have the Red Cross do my glasses for me because we couldn't afford them. Mm. Uh, and the next thing I know, I'm spending years hanging out with leaders of political parties and CEOs of billion-dollar corporations. A certain amount of, uh, I'm not sure if it's cognitive dissonance, but it's certainly feeling rather strange sometimes. <laughs> it comes into it. Spiritual whiplash. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I'm aware, and this shows up in the Guth Bander stories, um, and it comes from reading Jung, Carl Jung, when I was younger. I have a fragmented psyche. There are different parts of me that do different things. And the guy who went downtown and sat in the executive suite with some CEO was a lot different from the guy who went home. And I can feel the change happen sometimes. So do you, do you think that that's something that – that crossing of that sort of um, Terminator line, if you will, right, uh, within your own psyche, do you think that that's something that you wanted to explore with this idea of a, a world where science slowly, you know, it, it fades and then suddenly flips to, to magic? I suppose. It, it really was just a throwaway line in Fool's Errand to try and explain why <laughs> Vance had two different universes. In the same planet. Mm -hmm. but, uh, well, yeah, I, I suppose uh, I don't do much introspection anymore. <laughs> That's fair. You get yeah, to it's my age; it's, it's all pretty well settled, anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, 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 I only thought about it because I, I think that. Um, from what I've uh, read, you, you've mentioned that you are very sort of much a a subconscious or an unconscious. Uh, you mine your your own unconscious or subconscious for a lot of the ideas that you get. Oh yeah, I totally rely upon. I say the guy in the back of my head uh, who feeds me stuff, and I type it out and polish it a bit. But I've never outlined a novel. I don't even have a lot of short stories. Um, I start with a character and a problem, and then see what happens. You got you got a speechwriter in your head. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll I, I tell you, when I was speechwriting, I would read over the material they gave me and think about, you know, what's a good way to start this? And then I would start it, and then I would just carry on from there. And most of, uh, and this sounds braggadocious, but most of what I wrote was accepted on the first draft. Because uh, it, it, I could get the voice of the person who was going to give it in my head and write it so it sounded like them. And I also understood that the whole thing was about not transferring information, but creating an impression and a sense of you and me were all together between the speaker and the audience. Mm-hmm. And that's the essence of especially business speech writing, but the same with political. Right, right. Yeah. So if, if I can step back really quickly, because you, you mentioned that you had a, a long stint, uh, of which I, I brushed up against in uh, the magazine of uh, fantasy and science fiction. But it turns out that uh, if I'm understanding correctly, 
um, one of the first readers there while you were publishing often under uh, Gordon Van Gelder was none other than John Joseph Adams. Yes, he would have been the guy who plucked my first Hengus Hapthorne story out of the slush pile and given it to Gordon and said, read this. Mm -hmm. And then Gordon told me after it was the first thing that had made him laugh in two years out loud. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. John Joseph Adams uh, was the doorway through which I, I sashayed. Well, and then when he uh, went off to, I, I'm gonna say I, I don't remember exactly when, but I want to say it's like somewhere in 2012, maybe 2013. He he broke off and then created Lightspeed Magazine. Yeah. And uh, as I understand it, you you have uh, pretty much sold him a bunch of your Caslow stories, right? I sold him all the Caslow stories, which is actually me writing a novel in episodes and selling them to him so that I could then self-publish it or find a <laughs> publisher for it afterwards. It's a way of getting paid twice. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, believe you me, I, I love I love uh, being able to sell a reprint. So, yeah. <laughs> And I ended up selling that to uh, PS Publishing in the UK, who had oh. done... Uh, they had published, well, they had published four um, novellas uh, featuring my, one of my, well, probably the character I like the most. Um, his name is Luff Imbry, and he is closely modeled on the characters that Sidney Greenstreet played mm -hmm. in The Maltese Falcon and Casablanca. Well, I, I think that even in, what is it, the the cover art for The Other, is that the one that has yeah. Luffin on the cover of it? Not the original, no. The original, uh, the one that was published by uh, Underground Press, un no, Underland Press, uh, they made him look like a Barbary pirate. You know, authors <laughs> get no, uh, you, you get no say about the covers. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's true. Um, so when I got the rights back and, and uh, self-published it, I came up with a, a character, a face that was more like what we're talking about. And in yeah. fact, right now I am 23,000 words into the sequel to that novel. Oh. I'm bringing Luff back, got him down off the shelf. And he is also facing up to the fact that magic is coming in. And I dealt with that in one of the novellas that I did for him, um, did for him, did about him. Uh, mm -hmm. And now I'm expanding on that. So he may end up as a wizard. I don't know. I never know how things are going to end when I start. Them. Hey, you know, if, if you knew how it ended, you wouldn't write it, right? Probably not. No, <laughs> I would lose interest. I mean, uh, the reason the reason I, I, I assume that or presume that is because that is more or less the way that I approach it as well as like, well, if I outlined it, I'd know the end. Uh, why would I write it then? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, well, it, they do I, say you're, you know, you are a discovery writer. You're a, a writer who discovers the story as you're writing it, which I think has some truth to it. Sounds a bit fancy, but... Uh, it is true. I discover what's going to happen. I discover who the characters are as I'm doing it. Yeah. Do you ever reach a point where, like, maybe around a little bit after the middle, 
after the muddle of the middle where you realize that all other avid, like all of the branchings have sort of been taken care of, there's only one, you know, like it's a straight shot to the end. Not quite a straight shot because I always like to have something unexpected pop in. But yeah, oh. once you get 60% the way through, um, I'm, I'm, and I look at it this way, a story is, whether it's a novel or a short story, is posing a dramatic question and answering it with what happens. And by the time you get 65% through, you pretty well know what your question is. Mm-hmm. And then the, the answers, there might be two or three different ones, but that's, you know, you know where you're going. There's only so many ways this can end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, if, if you've done your job right, I, I suppose you have closed enough doors that there's only, you know, a, a, a handful of possible ways that it can, it can go, right? Yeah, well, uh, as an editor told me once, and I took this as sound advice, uh, the two questions an editor asks when reviewing a manuscript is, uh, whose story is it, and what's it about? And those are the two things you may discover as you're writing them. I discover them as I'm writing mm-hmm. them. Um, but they're definitely the two things that I end up keeping in mind. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's pretty sound advice, to be honest. Yeah. Well, it's served uh, me well in the past 20-odd years. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking right now that there was a a novel I had out a year or two ago called Ghost Dreams, mm-hmm. which was published by PS Publishing in uh, the UK and the Commonwealth, but I have the North American rights for ebooks. Um, and I started that one on a whim. It's a story about a commercial burglar. That is a guy who burgles, you know, big places, not little people's houses. Uh, who gets involved with a ghost. And I was thinking, I'm going to write a kind of Thornsmith romp, you know, like Topper and, and all those old ghost stories, comedic, that uh, a brilliant man called Thornsmith wrote in the 30s and 40s, and then he died of alcoholism, which was a shame because he was just getting going. Um, mm-hmm. I thought, I'm going to do one of them. But as the... Uh, as the story progressed, and I got a better sense of the characters, uh, all of that farcical romp kind of stuff went out the window, and I found that I was writing a relatively serious urban fantasy about a man who'd been wounded by life and needed to recover, and this relationship with the ghost was how he did it. Yeah. Hmm. I had no idea that's what it was going to be when I started, but that's what it became. Well, I mean, it, it, the story takes you where it's going to take you. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I love this. I'm the, I'm definitely the non writer of the pair. I think they keep keep me around because I read books, but uh, I the the idea of the author's journey at where the where the author has a map. <clears throat> And it realizes it's a map to the wrong place. It's it's something I hear again and again, and I love it. You know, it's it's such an interesting uh, showing that this interaction isn't predictable. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's you wander into the forest and you see what you find. It's, in ways, it's like one of those old text-based uh, <laughs> computer games, like right? you know, from before we had pictures. 
uh, and you, you go into a forest and you find a well and you look in the well and what do you see and you go from there yeah yeah i mean it, it it's it yeah it, it really is in, an interesting process um but uh y- you know I, I think that maybe we should also talk a little bit about uh, because you recently started up a, a Patreon. Is that correct, Matt? Oh, it's been a few years now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, well, uh, it's made a major difference. I will say that um, it now makes it possible for me to stop writing pennies for word stories for the magazines and mm-hmm. write novels and self-publish them. Which is what now what I'm doing. Well, I mean, that Patreon is is really. Uh, I mean, I, I I really hope it continues to do <laughs> what it can what it's been doing because it is really an interesting venue uh, yeah. for for exactly that. Oh yeah, I, I think it's it's made it possible for me to do uh, quite a number of things that probably I wouldn't have been able to do. And the books are on the shelf now, and people can buy them and read them. Okay. So yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we uh, let let me just um, uh, turn towards the audience a moment and say, uh, folks, if if any of the stuff that we are talking to you know talking to Matt about today sounds uh, interesting to you, you, you're you're curious, go check out his Patreon. Um, I, I believe that you have uh, like certain levels that uh, that you would send certain stories and or uh, works, correct? Yes, except I'm going to be confessing here. I think most people just send me money because they want me to keep writing. <laughs> um, yeah, indeed. And I have for my upper tier uh, patrons, uh, once a year I send them a signed paperback of mine. But I've had a number nice. of people send me emails and say, I don't really need this just keep writing mm-hmm. and i also I mean, thought when i started it i thought i'd get 300 people maybe chipping in a buck a month and i think i have two who give me a dollar a month and it's more <laughs> likely they give me five or ten or fifteen or twenty yeah and it, i also have uh, bless them i have people who out of the blue send me a couple of hundred bucks and say keep it up <laughs> yeah that's great I mean, honestly, that's great, um, and and I, I will say that uh, I I would probably be one of the people that just would give you money just to keep writing because honestly, uh, when when I ran across a lot of your stories in in you know fantasy and science fiction, it, yeah, it it, it ca- they came at a time when it was very important to me. So oh, I'm glad to have been of help. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It, I, I'm not a huge proponent of escapism, but sometimes you you need a little bit. Well, yeah, and I am an entertainer, yeah. except for one book, which is my magnum opus, which is not it's... anything to do with Jack Vance or fantasy or diary <laughs> or any of that. But uh, it's it's the big one. That's your uh, that's your nonfiction one, right? No, it, it's uh, it is a historical novel with some. Magical realism in it. There we go. It's called What the Wind Brings. It's the only Canadian title to ever win the Endeavor Award, which always went to Americans before this, you know, Hmm. for 22 years. Um, 
And it's a story that I waited more than 40 years to write uh, after I read about it as a teenager and saw it in a footnote in a, a text in university. It's a story of uh, a boatload of African slaves who were shipwrecked on the jungle coast of Ecuador in the middle of the 1500s and melded in with the local uh, indigenous population who had been grievously reduced by the conquistadors. And then together they formed a mixed society and they, uh, I would say, they outfought and outthought the Spanish until they won their independence. And it, it's, uh, I think it's the best writing I've ever done. Um, and I'm hoping that it's the one I'll be remembered for. Excellent. And you said that's called What the Wind Brings? What the Wind Brings. Okay. So I, I just want to make sure that, uh, you know, if our listeners are interested, they can pick that one up as well. Because honestly, yeah. like, I, that sounds super interesting to me. I, I'm ordering it right now. Yeah. It's uh, the rights to it I sold to a small Canadian press run by a couple of people I really liked. And they're giving me the rights back as of the end of October. I have an agent in the States who's going to see if he can interest some big publisher in it. Hmm. So if you're a nice. collector type, now would be the time to get hold of that original Canadian edition because it won't be available anymore after <laughs> uh, October 31st. Well, there we have it. Yeah. All right. Um, Matt, I, I, I suppose that we should probably uh, round this out. Uh, and, and and I, I do want to thank you. Uh, like, uh, you know, if it wasn't clear before, I, I am, you know, super, super grateful that you, you know, decided to come on and talk with us a little bit. Uh, I'm no, glad I, that you... I love talking. You can't stop me from talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, maybe we could have you back at some point. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anytime you want. Excellent. Excellent. That, that sounds great. All right. Well, Matt, I mean, honestly, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I, again, I, I, I would like to see if we can get you back at some point. But uh, but is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about before we uh, we sign off? Yes, there is. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to do this now. I have a monthly uh, newsletter that I send out to several hundred people um, by email. And it's my main way of communicating with my readers. <laughs> I would have ordinarily said, go to my uh, webpage, but my webpage has had some sort of server collapse. So you can't go there and sign up. Um, but anybody who wants to send me an email, and the address is himself at arconate.com. A-R-C-H-O-N-A-T-E dot com. Um, I will put them on the list and I will send them a free ebook for the, being so kind as to come and sign up with me. Oh, excellent. All right. Yeah. Well, n now you know it. Now I, you know, I, I'll, I'll make sure to, uh, to, Make that known to some of our uh, some of our our own listeners here, just to make sure that they they don't miss out on that. Yeah, good. Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah. Excellent, Pete. Did you have anything? Any last thoughts or anything else? 
Uh, just that my favorite episodes of Podside are when we talk about an author, get really excited, and then he shows up later. This is absolutely the best. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, man. My pleasure. Excellent. Well, again, thanks again, Matt. And uh, everyone out there, thanks for listening. We hope to catch you next time here on Podside.